Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. We are a show that reports, rebels, and you know we tell it just like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. So join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we think about the future. Now on today's show, we're continuing our Road to Confirmation series, following the nomination and confirmation process of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. She's President Joe Biden's nominee to replace Justice Stephen Breyer on the United States Supreme Court. On the Issues is taking you through each step of the confirmation process as it happens in real time with commentary and analysis from some of the nation's leading experts. We tuned in to Judge Jackson's confirmation hearings, which notably marked the fourth time she has appeared before the United States Senate. Over the course of four arduous days, we watched as Judge Jackson brilliantly weathered nonstop questioning from members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yes, we all expected a robust process. What many observed, however, was the public derailment of what should have been a rigorous but respectful process. Instead, Judge Jackson walked through fire. Simply put, the confirmation hearings were historic for the pioneering work of Judge Jackson, while also a shameful display by members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. They were inspirational, and yet a chilling setback reminiscent of an angry past in the United States where any advance by Black Americans' progress was met by stereotyping, scurrilous attack, insecurity, and backlash. And so to unpack much of it, in this episode, we're bringing you a three-part show on the confirmation hearings. And I start with my guest, Siovada Idari. She's a criminal defense attorney, former federal defender, and also an internationally award-winning chocolatier. Siavada Adari has been recognized as a leading voice and advocate in the United States for criminal justice, both in the public and private sectors. Vada, thank you so much for joining us on the show and lending your expertise. So tell us about what the public may have missed given the way in which the Senate Judiciary Committee framed Judge Jackson's prior work as a federal public defender? And why exactly does it matter that she has given this type of public service to our nation? Of course. And, and I've been following this in between chocolate production, and I'm just appalled that she'd even be, you know, questioned about her job. Um, you know, I think there's a, a lot of confusion with especially the, the general public of, you know, what we do. And I've had people ask me, you know, for the past 20 years, how can you defend somebody that you know is guilty? And so, you know, I think what, what's important for people to understand is that we don't defend crimes. You know, nobody thinks that like, you know, murdering people is good or downloading, you know, child pornography or child, child pornography production is good. You know, we're not defending crimes. We're defending the rights and liberties guaranteed under the Constitution. And, you know, it's our battles as criminal defense lawyers for our clients that strengthen the rights for everybody, even these people that are attacking uh, Justice Jackson. So it's, it's just uh, to watch this and to think about all the Republicans who have needed good defense attorneys is just it's, it's a circus. Um, 
you know, in my opinion, I think what we do as criminal defense attorneys is probably the most noble path for a lawyer. You know, it, there's not a lot of people that want to do it. Um, you know, not, not a lot of people want to do this work. And it's, it's actually, there's a crisis in this country in the public defender system right now because they can't find attorneys, you know, qualified attorneys to take on, especially these high stakes cases, which tend to have, you know, some pretty gruesome facts. Um, but, but this is what we do. And when you're in a public defender office, you don't get to pick and choose your cases, you know? So, uh, you know, I'll recall, um, when I was a, a new lawyer, when I was brand new, I worked in the, uh, appellate division of the public defender's office. That's where I started. And I shadowed an attorney for, you know, I had to shadow attorneys for a little bit before they allowed me to take cases. And I remember the first time I sat down with a client, uh, with another attorney's client. And it was a, a horrific um, child sexual assault case. And when I came back to my office, I just sat and cried. And uh, another senior lawyer came into my office and, um, you know, we talked through it. And she said, you know, if you can't defend that person, then you're in the wrong industry. You know, you, you, your fight for that person is what makes all of our rights strong. Uh, and, you know, she's absolutely right. People have to understand this. And, and I'll tell you, for all these people that think, you know, that we're, we're putting criminals on the street and blah, 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 they, everybody has a constitutional right, right? The, the, the rights guaranteed under the Constitution um, to protect their liberties and, and due process. They're all, we're all entitled to due process when we're, you know, charged with crimes. And, I mean, it's such a basic thing. I can't believe anybody would be questioned about that. So um, I'll, I'll tell you another quick story. One time I was, uh, when I was, did my first couple of years in the trial division of the Milwaukee Public Defender Office, uh, I was sitting in preliminary hearing court next to a police officer. And I was on this winning streak. I was winning all these motions to suppress. Um, and, and, and it was in part due to a group of rogue cops who have since been indicted in federal court. Um, and an officer looked at me and he said, how do you feel about yourself? And I said, what do you mean? He said, how do you feel about yourself letting all these criminals back on the street? And I just said, I thought about it. I'm like, the nerve. I said, how do you feel about yourself? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, if you did your job the way you're supposed to, you know, they'd be held accountable. You know, so people don't understand uh, the basics of what, you know, the Fourth Amendment is and what, you know, it's my fight for my guilty drug dealing client. Uh, that strengthens the rights of your neighbor, your innocent neighbor next door from, you know, preventing them from getting their door kicked in in the middle of the night by the police, right? Mm -hmm. On accident. Well, so, so yeah. on that point, right? So you, as a federal public defender, you did the exact same job um, within category as Judge Jackson did before she became a judge. What's the importance of that role? Because you'd think that based on what we heard from some of the senators, and you are addressing this, that that's the, a loathsome job um, to, to have. Um, they criticized her, it seemed, for the briefs that she wrote, including her representation of individuals who were at Guantanamo. Um, and I'd love to hear your perspective on that. And it also seems to be that what comes across nationally is this perception that people who need criminal defense attorneys are black and brown 
and that these right. are the people who are overflowing in our jails. And there seems to be this kind of frustration and underlying implicit and explicit types of biases associated with that. But I think that your experience in Kansas and the state of Washington might paint a different picture. Right. So when I worked in, I, I worked in Wichita, Kansas, um, in the uh, Federal Defender Office for the District, District of Kansas, and um, <clears throat> most of my clients were white. And, you know, there's a lot of child pornography, a um, lot of fraud. Um, and there's also some hate crimes. I've represented white supremacists. Um, you know, I was actually asked about um, whether I would have represented Kyle Rittenhouse. And I said, yes, I would have, you know. Um, I mean, and, and let's just for the audience who's not able to see you, you are a black woman uh, who grew up in a multiracial household, which included an, an Iranian stepfather. This actually kind of influences the chocolate that you make with just such mm-hmm. beautiful uh, ingredients. But you're saying that as a black woman who considers herself to be engaged socially and culturally on issues that uplift America that you would have, and that you did represent white supremacists, not that you would have, but you did. Right. Why? Some might say, you know, you you can't say that one person is entitled uh, to their, to constitutional rights and somebody else is not. Um, And that's what, uh, is this what they're suggesting that not everybody in this country is entitled to the rights guaranteed under the constitution? Um, you know, why don't we turn the question back on them? Right. So, you know, we don't pick and choose what we take all the time. And, you know, some people can, when you're in a public defender office, you generally can't. Um, and so this is a point for you. And then also judge Jackson that you really couldn't pick and choose your clients so that when you were working in the West in communities where there were white militias and white supremacist groups, uh, you as a black woman were called to represent them and you couldn't represent them non-zealously. Is that right? Exactly. It, that's absolutely right. But even You had to give practice, zealous I, representation to white supremacists. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, this is, we, we take an oath. Um, and if you don't take that oath seriously, you shouldn't be doing this work. Well, and so, if you don't take that oath um, seriously, and, you can be disbarred. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there are actual requirements, which actually didn't come out in the congressional and the confirmation hearings, right? So it didn't come out that you don't really get to pick and choose. We heard a little bit about that, Um, but that you are saddled with what you get. And actually the requirements of the bar itself is that you must do a zealous job and and zealous advocacy. Otherwise, you may not be able to practice law, not just for that particular cohort of people, but it actually affects anybody else that you would want to represent. That's right. That's right. You do a good job for everybody, um, you know, without bringing in whatever bias you might have, you know, and that's something that, um, you know, what I love about watching uh, Justice, uh, Justice Jackson is just how unbothered she looks. You know? I love that you called her Justice others. Jackson. You're like already predicted, predicting that this Absolutely. is about to happen. I love She's, it. I, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, I just love watching her and uh, I see how, you know, it's painful to watch, but at the same time, I know, you know, I've been, I've been there and, you know, the, the other theme of this is not just, you know, 
about what we're talking about with um, uh, criminal defense work, but it's also the story of, of black women lawyers. You know, there are not a lot of black women public defenders. There's not a lot of us in this, in this work. Um, and I wish, I, I hope that that changes. Uh, but the attacks that she's getting, I mean, when like, it, you know, the majority of people doing this work are white men, would they be questioned in the same way? Um, probably not, so right? It might be perceived they that they wouldn't. were actually doing something noble and that exactly. they could have been working elsewhere, but they chose the calling of the Constitution Absolutely. and the calling That's of the right. Supreme Court and state Supreme Courts to do this very important work. That's right. Absolutely. So, so that's the, the very sad, you know, real theme here is, is, you know, the, the bias involved in this, in this, this. So something else questioning. That, that I want to turn to before I let you go, I know you've got many people to satisfy and get uh, both because right now you're actually handling a very big case. And at the same time, uh, doing a significant rush to uh, get your chocolates out because people order them from all over the world. Um, and, and that is, there was a lot of questioning about the, pornography. Now, clearly, they were selecting and cherry picking of a very broad record uh, of the more than 500 cases in which she is served as a judge. There was a very narrow set of them that um, some senators on the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee were kind of picking apart. And those involved sentencing with regard to uh, individuals who possess child pornography. Now, one thing mm -hmm. that the senators didn't seem to come to ask themselves was that they get to actually set some standards in terms of uh, mandatory sentencing, and it's not something that they've done. So they were putting a lot of pressure on her in relation to things that they could actually do. But these are areas that call for um, great concentrated engagement and understanding of some complexities. And I'm wondering if you might be able to give us some sense of what those complexities may be when you are as a defender representing someone who's in possession of child pornography and what, maybe if you can give us into any intuitions about what a judge must weigh. And, and let me add one piece to that. It strikes me that one of the things that didn't come out in the hearing is the fact that so many young people are in possession of what would otherwise be called child uh, pornographic images. And we're talking about mm -hmm. kids who are 11, 12, 13, 14 years old who are mm -hmm. sharing this amongst themselves. Um, and so how do we unpack this um, in a way that's... Um, I, I guess more nuanced than what we got from the hearings. So the, the federal sentencing guidelines, which used to be mandatory, they no longer are mandatory, um, are quite irrational. And, you know, they've been challenged successfully and, and they, most of the challenges come on a case by case basis. Uh, so there's something called a variance. Uh, there's various ways to get below the, the guidelines. Um, a variance is, uh, you know, you, you can ask for a variance when the circumstances in your case, say if you have somebody that's got like severe porn addiction, you know, you, we tell the stories a lot. What we do is we tell stories about our clients, about how they got to a certain place. Um, we also examine the evidence in light of, you know, the, 
the uh, guidelines for the, for the child pornography statutes are driven by the amount of images and they really don't make a lot of sense, you know, like a video. And I, I haven't done one in years, but I mean, you know, when I first started doing this work and saw that like a video of child porn is worth this many points versus, you know, it's just not rational. And the problem with when you have irrational laws is it really puts us all at risk. They, you have to have some sort of a, uh, some sort of a basis to when you're, when you're taking, I'm talking about taking somebody's a human being's liberties away and putting them in a cage it should really be a very careful and carefully thought out process. And I'm sure that these folks questioning her about this, if they had their own children in possession of child porn, would want a lawyer like she was at one point or a lawyer like me. You know, you want somebody that's going to fight zealously for, for uh, your, your loved one's rights and liberties. So the guidelines are extremely irrational. It was one of the most frustrating things about, about the practice. I mean, uh, they didn't make any sense. And, and they, they still, they still don't. And that's, that's a lot of our fight in, in uh, federal court is fighting those guidelines and trying to take our clients outside of kind of that, that tunnel vision of that these guidelines present and, and really show the whole picture of this human being. Because ultimately, folks going to prison are coming back out into the society and it's in everybody's best interest. You know, if somebody moves in next door to you, that that person be, you know, so- uh, get some kind of help. So it seems so, that that was something um, that she now, was... Well, I want to mention one, one thing yes. also, that the demographic of defendants uh, facing child pornography, um, you know, under indictment for child pornography has changed. When I started practicing about 20 years ago, uh, it, was, it was typically like older, middle-aged white men. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's getting younger and younger, more diverse, which to me is a testament of how prolific pornography is and how easy it is to get to this stuff. Um, and so we all need to be concerned about this. And I'm sure if somebody's kid uh, was, was found with, you know, a whole bunch of child pornography on their computer that might trigger even a mandatory minimum, uh, you know, they'd all be very concerned about that. So when it hits home, that's when people get concerned. So this is not something that's isolated to certain people. This, this affects anybody. I mean, it's so... It's so easy for people to get access to this stuff in this day and age. It's actually Um, something that middle school teachers have been articulating some serious concern about for the last decade because middle schoolers get their hands on this. And and as you are, you know, as your criminal defense lawyer, you know well and maybe could just tell us really quickly about um, the fact that there are some kids who are charged as adults. So this is not when we're talking about this this space. Um, it's one in which children don't necessarily get a pass. So when they're saying no, there right. should be fifty years for, which is what uh, Senator Lindsey Graham said. You know, no fifty years, mm-hmm. toss the book, never get out. But if you're right. talking about a twelve-year-old, a thirteen-year-old, that's right. What That's do you right. do? And let's talk about why, why are, why is this happening? You know, why are they, why is it so easily accessible? Um, and, you know, talking about addiction because mm-hmm. people that are in that world are, they're addicted to it. It's mm-hmm. very addictive material. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an illness when you have an addiction and to not treat it like that, to not want people to be uh, rehabilitated is, um, is not what our criminal justice system is supposed to be about. And at We're the same, to, 
Right. And at the same time, you're not saying that it doesn't matter what happens to sexual assault survivors and people whose images are circulated uh, around because that too is something that uh, is damaging and pernicious and absolutely awful. But it did strike me and I'm glad that, you know, you agreed to be with me today to just help us understand a bit more about what it means to be a criminal defense attorney, what it means to work in uh, public defense as a state or federal public de defender, and frankly, what it meant for you as a black woman to work as a federal defender and having to represent white supremacists. Now, now, one of the things, the white supremacists that you represented, was that based on their hate crimes and white supremacy, or was that based on other things? The cases that I had um, were other, you know, status offenses like a felon in possession. So I've, I've not had... Um, uh, a case where somebody actually um, committed a hate crime, what could be considered a, a hate crime. Um, but in Kansas, I had, uh, and in Washington, uh, a number of people that were members of the Aryan Brotherhood who, you know, I, I remember going to see a client at the jail when I was assigned his case in Kansas, and he had, you know, swastikas tattooed all over his face and all over his arms. And I go to see him at the jail, and he kind of looked starstruck or just kind of, you know, a little bit, uh, shocked. He says, are you my lawyer? I said, yes. And he was just apologizing. He's like, oh, you know what? I have to tell you all my girlfriends have been black and Mexican. I said, I'm your lawyer. I'm not, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to, 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 uh, defend you. And so, um, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but you know, I take, I take that oath very seriously because I understand, you know, the bigger picture. And, you know, I see, I kind of see defense attorneys as the ultimate police of the system. We're the ones that make sure that the system is working the way that it should. You know, our battles from each client to client make sure that this and our challenges make sure that the system uh, stays true to what it's supposed to be about for everybody. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a noble, it's a noble thing. I, I recently um, team taught a trial ed class in Milwaukee. And I asked the, the students to raise their hands. If, I asked who, who, who's uh, interested in being a public defender? Nobody raised their hand. Who's interested in, in being a prosecutor? half the class raised their hands. And I, it just made me kind of sad. I thought, well, you know, we, we need more people. We need to revive the interest in doing this side of the work. I think it's extremely noble. The people that are attacking Justice Jackson for her career path that themselves, I'm sure, have needed defense attorneys at some point for their some children. Of them, or maybe yes, even well, some themselves, of them were at the right? January 6th. Uh, Thank yes. you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'd be shocked if they actually believe what they're saying. I think they're just, you know, um, it's really kind of just trying to break her and harass her, but it's not going to work because we, when you're a black woman, criminal defense lawyer, you have a very thick skin, very thick skin. There's not much that can bother us, you know? So uh, I, I'm just really enjoying watching her just stay just unbothered, you know, mm -hmm. and answering the questions calm and, and collected and, you know, it's unfortunate she has to go through this circus, this this weird exercise. But, you know, um, I, I think she's she's handling herself very well. So I wanted to dig deeper into what we learned from the confirmation hearings of Judge Jackson for the United States Supreme Court. And I turn to our repeat special guest, Professor Stephen Vladek. He's a nationally recognized expert on federal courts, constitutional law, national security, and military justice. For many reasons, he fit the bill 
to just come back on the show and help to level set. He's the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law, and he's argued multiple cases before the United States Supreme Court. So right off the bat, I asked him, what was his take on the confirmation hearings? Oh, man. Um, I guess, Michelle, it was really a tale of two hearings. Um, it was, you know, the hearing that the Democrats tried to have about Judge Jackson's record. Um, and it was the hearing that the Republicans wanted to have about, you know, perceived grievances left over from the confirmations of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And I think, as we've seen, some pretty frustrating misrepresentations, um, not right. just of Judge Jackson's record, um, but of things that happened in the past. I mean, the just to take one example, the whole, you know, she called Bush and Rumsfeld a you know, war criminals uh, uh, talking point. And I, it seemed pretty clear that the you know Republican senators didn't really much care about the confirmation hearing. They cared about the sound bites mm-hmm. um, and getting on the news for their sound bites. And Even the Senator Sass yeah. seemed to imply yeah. that. Yep. More than and, imply, right? Yeah, basically said it. And and I think the Democrats, you know, frankly, from where I was sitting, I think didn't do a good enough job of punching back um, mm-hmm. and of, you know, excoriating their colleagues for behaving like bullies and for, you know, behaving in the very ways that they both said they wouldn't and criticized the Democrats for behaving in prior hearings. So mm-hmm. I, I don't really think at the end of the day, Michelle, anyone covered themselves in glory with the, I think, rather significant exception of the nominee. Mm-hmm. Right. She was really quite exceptional. She really yeah, I was. Mean, I, I just, I can't imagine sitting through that. You know, I've, I've sat through Senate Judiciary Committee hearings where the members are all yelling at each other and mm-hmm. where they weren't directing their ire at me. Those are intense enough. Um, mm-hmm. But I just, you know, I, I don't think anyone's going to look at what happened this week as um, a positive lesson about the state of our uh, Supreme Court confirmation process. Um, but I also think, you know, more importantly for short-term purposes, I, I suspect it isn't going to affect the bottom line. I mean, I think the odds are still very, very good that, you know, within the next couple of weeks, Judge Jackson will be confirmed as the 116th justice. Of the Supreme Court. So what's your sense? Is there a, is was part of this effort to leave a lingering score Scar against Judge Jackson, soon to be Justice Jackson, or was it uh, the kind of presidential hopefuls, uh, the Ted Cruz running for office, and this gives some sound bites that secure a base for uh, running for the presidency. It's been rumored that Hawley is also thinking about a presidential run. So was some of this kind of burned earth type of uh, action about that? Um, what and, and what else should we be concerned about that was subtext even beyond Judge Jackson? Yeah, I, I mean, Michelle, I, I think certainly that's part of what's going on here. I mean, I think I think there was a strategic decision made by some of the Republicans involved that you know they didn't really have a good chance of derailing Judge Jackson's nomination, and so the best they could do is score political points for their own you know future presidential aspirations. Um, I guess that what what I find troubling um, is that, and, and I think some of this is the fault of Democratic senators on the committee. I think some of this is the fault of the media coverage. Is that you know I, I think the sort of there's way too much. Um, oh well, this is just how the process is now, mm-hmm. um, right? There, there's way too much acceptance that this was actually appropriate behavior. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, barraging, uh, uh, um, barraging the witness, um, you know, the, the go, digging, the, you know, asking Judge Jackson over and over and over again the same question about the same, you know, misstated misrepresentations of her approach to child pornography cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I guess... Where I come from, and this might be a, a naive, a naive, a naive perspective. These are supposed to be about principles and about, you know, what kind of judge you're going to be. You know, what, what, who are your role models when it comes to judging? You know, what, what kinds of of things do you think are important and not important for Supreme Court justices? Instead, it was just the battle of the talking points. And my my real fear is that the Democrats, by basically playing the same game in reverse. Um, I think we're playing like a prevent defense, right? Mm-hmm. They just say, you know, they they knew too that the odds are that this goes through. And so I think they gave way too much ground to the Republicans to turn this into really a, a demagoguery fest. As and it certainly to a, was. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. incredibly undignified, yes. um, the ways in which she was attacked. And then finally, with the reprieves that she got from uh, Senators Booker and Padilla, notably two people of color, who are in the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, when others sat by um, and observed those attacks. And there are real distinctions to be made. So even while uh, Senators Lindsey Graham and Cotton and others were suggesting that, well, this is the way that Amy Coney Barrett was treated and this is the way that Brett Kavanaugh was treated. First of all, it's not true. They were not subjected to these constant barrages of inter- uh, interruptions. And then secondly, if we're to take uh, sexual harassment seriously. So here are people talking about pornography and, and sexual abuse associated with right. images. And when credible uh, persons came forward about um sexual abuse of someone, um, someone alleging that against uh, Brett Kavanaugh wasn't the Senate Judiciary um, Committee supposed to do due diligence with regard to that. I'm also trying to figure out which confirmation hearing of Justice Barrett these senators actually remember, because, you know, the hearing I remember from two years ago was heated um, in the sense that Democrats had some pretty strenuous and frankly fair procedural objections to what the Republicans were doing. Um, you know, I think the Democrats, especially in the wake, right, of Merrick Garland not yep. getting a hearing yep. even months before this yep. was a quick turnaround, yep. um, right, right in the space of the election. And and on substance, you know, I, I I for one think the Democrats overplayed, you know, the sort of the the point about Judge then Judge Barrett's criticism of the Affordable Care Act, um, mm-hmm. right? But like the notion that these two things were the same requires a very skewed perspective. Cool of the kinds of questions Democratic senators asked Amy Coney Barrett in 2020. And, I mean, the the children's book um, right. um, episode. Oh, my gosh. Years, I mean, so I just, you know, I, I and I guess this this to me is the troubling part. Like, I, I don't think at the end of the day this is going to have any, you know, this is going to sort of create any problem for Judge Jackson's uh, confirmation. I mean, I think what this really portends is that we're at a point now where people are incapable of treating as different, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, heated but substantive um, right. objections to a nominee and just, you know, preposterous um, innuendo and insinuations about Judge Jackson based on nothing in her record. 
Well, and these kind of false equivalencies that also uh, concern me as well, right? That that it's all equal when it's it's not. Um, and actually a, a record of over 500 cases where only a very thin slice are uh, considered and not the broader, which is also very interesting, right? Because, well, maybe there were other areas um, that were worth exploring, but I think it exposes the way in which this really was a kind of cherry picking and a kind of ogling for the cameras associated with that, which seems the most inflammatory, right? So let's get her on representing these defendants at Guantanamo, right? Let's try to bring her down, right? Because as a judge, um, she heard cases involving child pornography, um, as if in either one, there's a, a real uh, choice one can make when you are uh, defense attorney, you take the clients that are given to you. Um, but that also brings me to something else in terms of subtext, because you heard the hearings just as I did, and it seemed to me that there were um, implicit and nearly explicit attacks on trans families and kids. Um, the whole line of questioning around what is a woman, nobody else has been asked questions right. about uh, what is a, a woman. Right. I mean, um, how, about, how about Senator Graham asking her to rate her faith on a scale of one to ten? Yeah, who in the world has, <laughs> has had to do that uh, since, since? Let's be clear, right? Not Amy Coney Barrett again, like this right? Is, not right, Amy you know. Coney, yeah, not right. Amy Coney Barrett or anybody else, right? This right. separation of church and state, you know, gone out the window, um, and it also strikes me too as this badgering about, and even a flogging, as someone has mentioned. Uh, about her work as a public defender. You'd think that the Constitution made no room for protecting the rights of individuals who must defend themselves against the state. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, this is, uh, th there's there's the dispiriting part, there's the frustrating part, and then there's just the disheartening, um, you know, sort of takeaways from the hearing. And I guess I just, you know, I I'd like to think that the Republicans would have behaved this badly no matter who the nominee was. But of course, it's hard to separate the fact that they behaved this badly toward the first black woman ever nominated to be on the Supreme Court. And, you know, I just think that the, I mean, it has all the hallmarks of white male grievance, right? You know, the, mm -hmm. we were aggrieved. Why are we aggrieved? Because Democrats objected to our prior Supreme Court nominees. Never mind, Michelle, that they were confirmed. Never mind that the court has a 6-3 conservative majority at the moment. We are still going to make this all about the politics of grievance. And as a lecture from the white men Republican senators to the first black woman nominee in the Supreme Court's history, uh, that's a rather discordant note, I think, for them to strike. And I just think that the, the absence of a coordinated, emphatic pushback from the Democratic senators on the committee, that it was left to, you know, Senators Booker and Padilla, who did yeoman work, but who are, mm -hmm. in many respects, you know, among the sort of more junior members of the Democratic membership on that committee, I think is really um, a deeper reflection of a broader problem in Democratic politics right now, which mm -hmm. is the inability of far too many of our elected officials on the Democratic side of the aisle to take seriously just how radicalized 
Republican politics have become. And I think we saw a lot of that radicalization in, you know, the not so subtle nods toward QAnon by Senator Well, Pauline, January 6th. Right? I mean, there, yep. there was at least one yep. member of the Senate Judiciary Committee that was amongst the people who were in the crowd and doing right. a kind of power fist or power pump fist, and, and so, whatever and, and that so was. I guess, and so I guess, I mean, Michelle, to me, you know, the Democrats had a confirmation hearing like it was you know, 2010, and it's Elena Kagan all over again, mm-hmm. right? And the Republicans had a confirmation hearing like it's 2022. And, Oof. you know, the Democrats are going to survive this one because they've got the votes. But from a messaging perspective, it just, you know, I really, I, I think it's, I think it is an ominous sign of things to come that this is how things went in what should have been a, you know, feisty and mm-hmm. spirited right. intellectual conversation yes. about Judge Jackson. Which is what but, didn't yeah. happen, right? And you're absolutely yeah. right, because I was thinking of that too, Steve, that here's an opportunity for a person who's whip smart as Judge yep. Jackson is, who's very learned in the law, which which was just so very clear. Here could have been the opportunity for a confirmation hearing that was similar to that of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, where it just seemed like she was having fun answering uh, you know, tough questions, enjoying it along the way, able to talk about uh, what her life is, what the, the sort of what's important for her as a jurist, what was important for her as a lawyer, her thinking about things, whether you call it a methodology, a philosophy, or a bit of both. And this was anything but that, but that was what the nation deserved, something along uh, at least those lines. And instead, what we got was something like Bloody Sunday prior to the, you know, uh, passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And, and then the Republicans turn around and say, well, we didn't learn enough about her judicial philosophy. Um, well, maybe if you had asked her more questions about her judicial philosophy and fewer questions about, you know, children's books and mm-hmm. various other things that she has, you know, nothing to say based on her professional spirit. I mean, I just, it's, you know, it was all, it, it was a setup and, and it was always going to be a setup. And, you know, I guess we're past the point of being surprised by the behavior of the Republicans uh, on this front. I just, you know, that, that's why, I mean, I, there was a piece by Dahlia Lithwick that I thought hit the nail on the head, which is, you know, where were the Democrats in mm-hmm. making more noise? Why, why did Senator Durbin, right, get walked over so easily by, you know, Graham and Cruz? And I guess that's, yeah. that's I mean, where some I think were the saying what this was a strategy to just, you know, let them be themselves and then the country and the world will see this. But, you know, at the same time, why make roadkill um, along right. the way? And for, uh, Judge Jackson to have to go through a process where she's treated in such an undignified way uh, to just show the world that this is how Senator Graham behaves, or this is how uh, Senator Hawley behaves, or this is how Senator Cruz yeah. behaves. Why did she have to take that blow right. uh, just to be able to show that um, those individuals can be unhinged? Yes. And I guess, and so, so again, I mean, I don't think anything happened this week that's going to change the outcome here. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the perspective of just deepening and further entrenching, I think, you know, an increasingly cynical view of the state of our political culture, um, I think this week, you know, was a, 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 a smashing success.
So what comes next? I turn to Dean Danielle Holly Walker and Zanelle October to share their observations, not only on Judge Jackson and how she responded to questions in the hearings, but also the subtext of many of the committee members' questions and what they mean for the rule of law. After all, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee not only showed contempt for an immensely qualified woman to sit on the United States Supreme Court, but they also showed remarkable disdain for the rule of law. So uh, helping us to think that through is Dean Danielle Holly Walker, the Dean of Howard Law School and a former clerk to Chief Judge Carl E. Stewart on the Fifth Circuit. And I was also joined in this conversation by Zanelle October, the Executive Vice President of the American Constitution Society, the country's foremost progressive legal organization. So this week, we saw something that was historic in the confirmation hearings of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, historic in that she's the first black woman in the United States uh, to have a Supreme Court confirmation hearing. And we heard all of the distinction that she would bring to the office she has been as you said previously on the show dean danielle holly walker she's clerked at every level uh federal district court appellate court the supreme court she has served as a district court judge federal and also a federal appellate level judge she has more experience in that way than anybody else actually on uh the court and yet we also saw what some have described as a flogging of Judge Jackson. And so I want to start with you, uh, Dean Holly Walker. What did you observe this week in the confirmation hearings? It's great to be back with you uh, today to talk about Judge Jackson and her confirmation hearings. I think what we saw on display was really Judge Jackson's just incredible legal knowledge. She is obviously brilliant, one of the brightest uh, legal minds that we have in the United States. We saw a lot about her family. I was touched by seeing her husband sitting next to her, right behind her, and uh, her daughters on the first day, and then her daughter on the third day, where now we've seen a picture of her looking at her mother so admiringly um, as she stood up to this. I think the other thing that we saw is when everyone talks about this concept of judicial temperament, right? And what does it mean to have outstanding judicial temperament? Judge Jackson dealt with a barrage of, uh, you know, people interrupting her, being very disrespectful, accusing her of not telling the truth on various subjects. And she handled that for two days straight. And mind you, on the first day, 12 hours with only three breaks. It was really remarkable to watch. And if you didn't know anything about Katanji Brown Jackson before these hearings, I can't imagine anyone stepping away with anything other than incredible admiration uh, for this woman, her intellect, her professionalism, her commitment to the Constitution and the rule of law. I was blown away by her ability to withstand and elevate a process uh, that was not particularly kind to her this week. And Zanelle, on that note, just as Dean Holly Walker noted, on that first day, 12 hours, she took more than 500 questions 
on that first day. It was, it was pretty stunning. I, the first day or the first day and a, a half it was because these questions were being counted. And um, that's just simply extraordinary. And she experienced something that um, prior nominees just simply haven't in terms of the breadth of the questions, the depth of the questions, including questions about her religion, her religious commitments. Um, there were questions about the rule of law in ways that went beyond whether a judge can answer it or not. They went simply beyond the scope of what is the, the norm within these processes. Can you speak to that? Absolutely, Michelle. Very happy to speak to it. And thanks for having me back. Um, so, yeah, this was unusual, the way that they really pounded her, smeared her, distorted what she was saying. Um, but you know what, Michelle, she didn't let that face her. She, uh, we didn't allow that to face us uh, in terms of not stealing the joy as Senator Cory Booker really grounded us in. Um, it, it was a tough time. And, and I would say, absolutely, for a position of this level, that is lifetime, it should be tough. It should be extensive. But that does not mean that it should be abusive, which this really was. Yet under all of those circumstances, she really shown, in my opinion, she came through as someone who kept her poise, her grace, like you said, while walking under fire. I love the title that you used for today's episode. It's, it's really remarkable. Um, and not only, not only that, but as uh, Dean Holly Walker mentioned, she has all the substance, all of the experience. What more could anything, anyone want? There is no reason she shouldn't walk away from this being confirmed 100 to zero. So let me go back to that, Zanelle. I'm so happy that you raised this uh, issue about it should be tough, but you mentioned it should not be abusive. So what's that distinction in line? Absolutely. So that distinction is one, being, uh, being respectful would be nice to, to start with, where um, several of the senators would talk over Judge Jackson, wouldn't allow her to finish, um, really aggressive in their posture toward her. None of that was acceptable. And then I won't even get into the substantive pieces of the smears because they are simply worth not repeating here or anywhere, but really assassinating her character. Um, getting to the core of things that are just the opposite of what she believes or what her opinions have shown, honing in on one or two cases without all of the facts uh, out there. It, it, the picture was terrible and they knew what they were doing. It was very intentional, um, what several of these senators were doing, which is the nastiest part of it. And all under the guise as they all started off saying, this will be respectful, nothing like some other confirmation here as we've heard, which made it even more disgusting. Um, well, it but did again, because <laughs> even as Senator Grassley started with, oh, my wife was just enamored with you. And, and then there was Lindsey Graham, who on the first day for a brief period of time also made it seem like this will be a respectful um, hearing that we will be having. Um, and then let me turn that right back to you because yes, that was how it seemed to start. Certainly not what it became. Absolutely. And, and you know, going back to the initial point that I made, Michelle, 
yes, there's, there's no question that this was a really important job interview where you are on full screen with the world uh, with this process. Um, however, tough does not equate abusive. The exchanges and lectures that they gave her were distracting, appalling, and downright disrespectful, not becoming at all um, of what should be a, a real process to get at the issues at hand and and really it, it was her time to shine. And I'll say she did shine out of this despite all of that. She rose above it all and showed you could bring it on. I have seen everything in my lifetime. I've shared with you what I've seen. My parents are here with me. They've seen a lot. My daughter will see a lot. Um, my husband, it, it, was, it was impressive to see how she just continued on. Um, and I would say Senator Cory Booker came at exactly the right time when not only mm -hmm. Judge Jackson needed, but all of us to calm mm -hmm. things down, bring in the humanity. Where our well. nation needed oh, that. The world yep. needed that. So something else that you mentioned, and I want to turn to Dean Holly Walker on this in terms of a rigorous process. When I think about the confirmation hearings of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I've read and reread the transcripts, I've looked at the video uh, more than two or three times. It was a rigorous process, but it was beautiful. It was the opportunities that she uh, was provided to be able to speak to uh, her experience as a lawyer, as a law professor, as a judge. I mean, to really just even unpack her commitment to criminal jurisprudence. I mean, she was talking about how Justice Thurgood Marshall was a hero for her, Justice Brennan as well. She was telling, uh, informing the Senate Judiciary um, Committee about uh, the way in which she understood and saw reproductive rights. She talked about the case of Captain Kathy Strzok, who was denied the opportunity to actually carry her pregnancy to term in the US military before Roe because the US military before Roe demanded that women in its ranks must have abortions. Uh, and so she was able to talk about that. She was able to talk about how every year she visits uh, the jails in Washington DC and would take her clerks. And it was just wonderful to be able, be able to hear her talk about that uninterrupted, um, all of that. Um, and where one really got the chance to learn from her. And so Zanel, to your point, and I'm gonna turn this to Dean Holly Walker, this kind of opportunity to be rigorous and to learn, it seems to me that uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee failed in that regard because there was a concentration on just a handful of cases and we didn't get the chance to learn about the breadth of what she has experienced then as a district court judge and appellate court judge. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the contrast that you just drew between Justice Ginsburg's hearings and the hearings that we just saw for Judge Jackson, I think one of the key differences is that the Republican senators really used their time almost solely to deliver kind of political talking points um, for the midterms and also things that they knew would be Come really good kind of sound bites that they could then use to book spots on Fox News for that evening. Um, and so I'll give an example of where, so the difference between, for example, Senator Sass, who asked her on the first day a lot about her judicial philosophy, that would have been very common uh, for other confirmation hearings, a rigorous process. Who do you admire? Who do you model yourself after? Those are all questions, for example, that we would have seen in Justice Ginsburg's hearing that we've seen in many other hearings. 
Contrast that with Senator Cruz, who spent almost his entire time on the first day of questioning, asking Judge Jackson whether she agreed with random Black academics' thoughts on various things. He expected her, would Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett have been asked about Ibram Kendi or about Nicole Hannah-Jones? It was just completely not serious. It was not a or serious would just Or would Justice Barrett have been asked about a law and economist? Would she have been asked about Judge Posner? Would she have been asked about um, Richard Epstein? I mean, um, or, or take any other slice of any other piece of academia and people who have developed a certain type of scholarship. And in fact, on that note, what wasn't asked is that, as we know, around the time in which she went to law school, it was the time in which I was in law school, um, I didn't have in my first year of law school one Black law professor. And in the course of three years of law school, I didn't have one Black law professor. Um, I did have uh, a Black law professor who was at my law school, who was tenured and highly respected and became a great mentor and a friend. But even this kind of idea of taking something out of thin air from today and suggesting that somehow this has entered uh, her thinking or her courtroom when actually, if asked the question, when you were at law school, how many black professors were there even there for you to learn from? The answer would have been uh, one or two, if my memory serves me correctly, about the number of tenured black faculty on Harvard's uh, faculty. You know, Zanel, can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's simple, Michelle. They're not interested in those types of questions, right? This was a political agenda um, of many of these uh, Republicans to get at, um, again, airing themselves, um, their past laundry for whatever issues that they, they held, their grievances, basically. Um, also an opportunity for them to showcase, to show their, it was a presidential audition, if you will, um, and, and really to get at issues that they and their base are very passionate about and wanted to uh, really show Judge Jackson in a light that just was not Correct. Well, and in that way, it was just totally irrational, which is the point that I'm getting at, right? Like this idea that she has these kind of long-standing, decades-old kind of commitments to certain kinds of theories that have been right. When in reality, I mean, the the reality is that she was educated at a time in which, um, and it still is the case, right? That it's a general matter across American law schools. Critical race theory is not taught <laughs> every law school or every year. I mean, it's a fraction of a fraction of people who may even uh, teach it. A student may go through three years of law school and never have seen it in anywhere on the curriculum at an average American law school. Isn't that right, and, you know, Dean? And yeah, it was very irrational in the sense that they would. And again, I don't think that Senator Cruz really believes that her being a Supreme Court justice has anything to do with critical race theory. I really think that they understand that what they're doing is very calculated, but it was interesting to also see her have to kind of push off, say, I don't know anything about critical race theory. 
I don't, I, that was one of the few times in the hearing was like, I, do I really think that Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson doesn't know anything about critical race theory? I doubt it. I'm sure she knows plenty about critical race theory, but that kind of gamesmanship and trying to up each other on the ante, because I, I think even people like Senator uh, Blackburn, when you ask about abortion rights, that is relevant. I think, to um, a rigorous process, as we talked about, that will be something that the Supreme Court will need to decide. There will be nothing related to critical race theory that will need to be decided at the Supreme Court level. And so it's really not <laughs> right. I mean, it would all. be just as if saying that the Supreme Court had to uh, assess something about uh, law and economics behavioral economics said, oh, court, now you must uh, take into consideration law and economics and how are you going to be evaluated? It just simply is, isn't there. So I'm really glad that, that you spoke to that, poking a hole um, in that. You know, it strikes me as well that the rule of law was under attack as well during the confirmation hearings. And we've perhaps heard a little bit less about that. For example, the questions about uh, what is a woman? And I'm thinking about Bostock. I'm thinking about Obergefell. I'm thinking about, you know, Windsor. You know, all of this, those kinds of attacks, the attacks on criminal defense, when in fact the first 10 amendments of our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, are protecting individuals from the tyranny of the state. And so I'm wondering, Dean, and then I'm going to turn to you, Zanelle, about this. You know, what were your observations in terms of just the attacks? on the rule of law and the constitution itself. I mean, that was pretty jaw dropping um, in a number of areas. And you're absolutely right that we saw it pop up in a few areas. So number one, the idea that we should not have people who are engaged in public defender work or that somehow public defender work makes you soft on crime when we know that public defender work is necessary to the rule of law um, and to making sure that a number of our constitutional rights really come to life and have any meaning without defenders, there would be a no vindication of a certain set of constitutional rights. Then in the other place were the questions about substantive due process and the attempt to ask her to undermine certain critical precedents, um, such as Griswold and Roe. The idea that those precedents have already been overturned or that she should in some way agree that they should be overturned is to go against what the current rule of law is in our country. And it, so it was kind of astonishing. And I was trying to think if we had any other examples of Supreme Court confirmation hearings in which a nominee is actually asked to undermine what is current precedent instead of what we typically see is people asking, you know, do you agree that this is a super precedent? Instead, she was being asked the opposite. Are you willing to overturn essentially a super precedent? Yes, um, including on matters that uh, relate, as you say, to um, fundamental liberties. Really. Zanel, what more did you see in that regard in terms of the rule of law or American constitutionalism as we know it actually under attack at the same time that Judge Jackson was get it, getting these abusive kinds of questions, a word that I think is apropos, as you described, beyond rigorous. Everybody expects rigor. There's nothing that black women encounter that isn't at least very, very rigorous. <laughs> uh, but but this uh, we all saw as going off the rails. But but in, in terms of the kinds of questions that implicate the rule of law or the Constitution, what did you what did you observe? 
Well, I saw a complete display for a lack of respect for rule of law in our Constitution. It, it was really disheartening to see um, and quite scary, if, if I do say so myself. And what we saw in display, Michelle, is conservatives have made clear that Roe, Griswold, Obergefell, and even Loving are on the table. They just don't think the Supreme Court should have bestowed any of, the, of those rights or should continue to protect those rights. Um, and to expect this judge to come in and say, yeah, they should be overturned is ridiculous. Um, it, it shouldn't be asked of anybody. It shouldn't be expected of anybody. But again, I, I feel like she's totally held her own on, on each of these ridiculous questions. Not sure how she maintained her composure in, in light of this, but she did. And what came across, Michelle, was her um, real commitment to rule of law, to our Constitution, her love of this country, the service that she's done um, the most, the priority of her career just incredible. And I, I, just a quick note on both the federal public defender time and on the sentencing commission. Um, you know, it's incredible to have a judge on the court who has this kind of experience. Uh, overwhelmingly, we have folks who don't understand what the average person is going through, don't see that part of the equation. It would be such a benefit to this court to have that perspective, yet they really were not celebrating it. They were bringing it down as if she's some person who's going to give some set of people more rights than others instead of this is in our constitution and it's amazing to have people who really care and are dedicated to it um, who want to hold these positions so it should have been lifted up and it just wasn't um, and her time on the sentencing commission to understand what goes behind that and really understand the policy behind it and even with her decisions as they were sentencing decisions as they attacked again just one or two um, of those decisions you know it's it's wonderful to see a judge who takes the whole picture into account. And it's not unusual what she'd been doing in any of these um, sentencing decisions either. Uh, and the fact that they, you know, distorted that is pretty disgusting. Well, it's also and interesting too, the responsibilities that they would have if they in fact want to change and impose certain mandates in these areas and it's them. So it's interesting as well, the, uh, the attacks on Judge Jackson for things that actually the Senate's actually responsible for, right? If you want new rules in this regard, then Senate take up the effort to create new rules in this area. Dean, were you going to speak, speak to that? And I think she did a great job of continuing to emphasize the importance of separation of powers. Um, and really, it was a kind of masterclass. I said, I, I'm going to cut and put together some of those things for when I teach legislation and regulation, because she was explaining back to the senators, no, this is your role. And, exactly. this is my role. and some of them she had to really explain and talk very slowly to them about that. Oh Senator Holly uh, was one of them who she said, no, let me explain again how this works. Um, and I admire her for that. But I wanted to follow up on what Zanelle was saying in the sense that what really struck me is that she may be one of the few people we have seen in the public who did not back down about what it means to be a public defender. And the fact that she compared it to public service similar to what her brother had performed in the military and as a police officer. I don't think I had ever seen anyone in public life on a stage like that say, 
lawyers who defend the rights of criminal defendants are similar to the people that we think of as when we all congratulate people and thank them for their service. You never hear that done for public defenders. And I thought she did that this week in a way that I've never seen before so that people can walk up to a public defender and say, thank you for your service Um, because that's what they deserve. And that's what she really committed to and showed this week. That's right. And how important that is to the healthy functioning of our legal system and our judiciary. And it was very interesting, the sense of uh, deference, why not absolute deference to whatever the state would recommend, which was interesting given the backdrop of what we've all seen and what we've known in terms of the history of the state acting in ways that undermine or can undermine individual civil liberties and civil rights, whether we're talking about abuse and incarceration of women petitioning to vote, You know, whether we're talking about individuals who happen to be on death row exonerated by DNA evidence um, when there have been patterns of prosecutorial misconduct. I mean, the list goes on. And so this idea that uh, judges, their only role is to listen to uh, the state uh, is absurdist. And history shows us that, in fact, that is absurd. And in fact, we want judges to be able to do more. We expect them to be able to do more. We expect them to be able to hold multiple thoughts and complex ideas in mind and then be able to render a a decision. And I agree with the both of you that she demonstrated the type of temperament um, the type of nimble mind to be able to do that uh, fairly and under circumstances where I think she also educated the public uh, and that when you are a criminal uh, defense attorney, at least serving for the public and the state, you don't get to pick your clients. You don't. And we even know by the legal rules of ethics, if you are a private Uh, defense attorney, you don't either. Someone runs into your office and they blurt out things. You don't get to say, well, you're not my client. Now let me go and tell the police and prosecutor. You don't by the rules of legal ethics. And it seems to me that that was also something that um, those senators who are lawyers, they know that because they too have had to sit for the ethics bar. So I want to talk about what comes next. What's your sense of what the process will be uh, that we can look forward to uh, prior? I, I mean, I guess there's there's going to be the, the Senate's going to continue to confer and eventually there's going to be a vote in the committee and so forth. But let me start with you, Dean. What, what's next? So we know we're now in a process where typically senators come out and announce whether they're going to vote for the nominee. Her hearing, her vote in the Judiciary Committee will be April 4th is what it's scheduled for. Today, we just heard uh, that Senator Joe Manchin has announced that he will support her, uh, which means once we get probably one more announcement, we know that she will be confirmed. Um, The question is, will it be bipartisan? She got three Republican votes when she was confirmed to the D.C. Circuit, Collins, Murkowski and Graham. Highly doubtful that Graham uh, will vote for her, but we will see if she gets any more than two Republican votes. But it is remarkable, as Zanel said, this is a nominee who should get a full vote of the Senate. There should not be a single person who would vote against her. She's highly qualified. She has incredible judicial experience and experience at every level. But the truth is, she probably will get no more than three Republican uh, votes. But I think there is almost uh, no way after seeing Senator Manchin's announcement today that her confirmation will be derailed. 
Mm-hmm. And Zanelle, what's and, your sense? Yes, please. Yeah. Please go ahead. So everything uh, Dean Holly Walker said, but just a couple of other things to note. Um, prior to the hearings beginning, she, uh, Judge Jackson, met with 45. Um, senators, which was in and of itself incredible. And believe it or not, after that grueling process, the next day she continued those visits. Um, the goal is to visit each Senate office, which is certainly not required, but it speaks a lot to um, her and the team uh, walking through this process. Um, and so after the Senate Judiciary Committee votes uh, April 4th, um, they are hoping to have a full vote of the Senate shortly after that, certainly before the Senate recesses um, in April, which that recess starts April 9th, I believe. So just a few days after the, the vote in the committee. Um, and totally agree with Dean Holly Walker. We should see 100-0, but that's not the reality in which we find ourselves. Uh, so that probably will not happen. I, I will note it's been incredible as we're talking about all of this and seeing this, that there will not be one uh, black female in the Senate who could vote for her um, or vote on her just period. Um, and that's a whole other topic for another show, Michelle. Each episode, we ask our guests about a silver lining. This week, I reserved it for myself. For me, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson is the silver lining. She exemplifies the best of America, its potential, and by gosh, what it shall be. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guests, Dean Danielle Holly Walker, Professor Stephen Vladek, Zanel October, and Siovada Idari for joining us and being part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to you, our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is as usual. It will be an episode you will not want to miss. And for more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. In Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, we are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring the hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear about, then write to us at on the issues at MsMagazine.com, and we do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll, Oliver Hogg, and Nassim Alisobani. Our social media intern is Lillian LaSalle. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Kyle Good, music by Chris J. Lee, and social media assistant by Lillian LaSalle.